Is there a specific day of the week that each and every follower of Jesus should set aside to worship or to honor the Lord? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again. You're listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Monday, May the 16th of 2011. I'm your host today, Toby Logsdon, and God bless you. Thank you so much for downloading this message. We are just so blessed, and really, we're honored to have you here with us today, joining in our next installment in our study on Romans. We're going to be studying Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 14. We'll pick that up here in just a moment, but I uh, do want to welcome you guys and thank you again for joining us. I hope you guys have been enjoying John's study. Uh, on, uh, Of course, John's doing this study on First Peter, and I hope you guys are getting something out of it. He's had some issues with the sound. Uh, we, we realize that. We're working on that. Um, we, we got some emails from you guys, and uh, so yeah, that's something that has been brought to our attention. Uh, we're working on it, but yeah, if there are any issues that you're having, you can go to our uh, our page, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and click on the contact button at the top. That'll shoot me an email, and I can forward that on to John, or uh, I think John, uh, I'm pretty sure he, he leaves his email address uh, in the podcasts, but somebody had had some, con- some trouble contacting him. So... Um, Anyway, if you have any trouble contacting him through his email address, shoot me an email and I'll forward it on to him and uh, we'll get any issues that you might have resolved for you. Uh, man, in case you guys haven't heard, uh, up here in Washington State, we have had uh, no days so far this year where we've even reached 70 degrees. Uh, we're, we're on pace to break all kinds of records for uh, for rain and for uh, for temperatures, low temperatures this year. And I, I honestly can't say uh, that I can complain. <laughs> I, I've actually kind of enjoyed it, you know, even though I, I grew up in the desert. You know, I grew up in Las Vegas. Uh, so, you know, being in a place that's cold and wet is, you know, pretty much opposite from growing up in the desert where, you know, in the summertime it gets upwards of 110 degrees. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm training for a half marathon. I've got my next half marathon next month. And uh, I got to say, you know, the, the cooler temperatures do make it a little bit easier when you're running in uh, 50 or 55 degree weather. It's a lot easier than running in 90 or 95 degree weather. And I know that the humidity has already moved in uh, down in Arkansas. Uh, my mother-in-law is still down there. And uh, so I know that it's uh, very hot and humid down there. I don't miss hot and humid at all. <laughs> Not at all. But anyway, uh, yeah, just ran... 10 miles with uh, with one of my friends the other day. It was his first time running more than 10 miles and felt good. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that the weather is nice. Uh, it's cool still. So anyway, yeah, I'm on track to run uh, next month, my next half marathon. So assuming that I don't get injured between now and then, I am game for that. Anyway, we do have a lesson to get to today. So let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. God, we thank you so much that you love us the way that you do, and that you are working 
to conform each one of us to the image of your son, Jesus. God, I just pray that this lesson today will help us to grow in our trust in him and in our love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is, without question, just an absolute joy to look at the life of a person whose growth and whose walk with the Lord has been strong and whose life has thus been absolutely and supernaturally transformed by the grace of God. When you see somebody who goes from just being so far away from God to being somebody who who loves the Lord and they are growing in so many ways, man, that is an amazing thing to see. And while it's a long and often difficult season that a person has to walk through in order to, to learn to surrender more and more of themselves and their lives to Jesus, the result of hardships and trials, uh, mountaintops and valleys alike, is actually a beautiful thing in retrospect. Yeah, it's not always so fun to go through the valleys, but those mountaintops sure are beautiful in comparison to the valleys. Uh, my 10-year-old daughter uh, recently learned that a diamond is actually a piece of coal that's gone through a prolonged process, this, this long period of constant, intense compression. And it amazed her to learn that something as beautiful as a diamond can come from something as ugly and dirty and common as a piece of coal. But really, the life of a follower of Jesus is very similar to that diamond in that God takes us as common, dirty, ugly sinners And in his grace and in his time, he leads us through circumstances in life that will force us to abandon our addiction to feeding our flesh. And that in his time and in his ways, he conforms us more and more to the image of his son, Jesus. And as we continue discussing the life of a follower of Jesus and what the the life of a Christian looks like. That's really what we've been talking about since the beginning of Romans uh, chapter 12. Uh, But at this point, you know, it would be good for us to actually look back and remember that this section of the text is uh, dealing with how we, as followers of Jesus, should live, starting back in, uh, in chapter 12, where we learned that we're now able to live a life that's pleasing to God. And that's what it's all about. And we do this by not conforming to the ways of the world, but by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, let's not overlook the result that Paul ended that verse with. He wrote, quote, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So a natural question which should, at least in theory, arise from reading a verse like that is a question that I think every follower of Jesus will eventually face at one point or another. That being, how do I know what the will of God is? Well, sometimes, you know, it's really explicit. It's, it's a black and white issue. For example, when the Bible says, avoid sexual immorality, you know, it's, it's a black and white issue. Uh, it's explicit, especially when we realize that even thinking about having sex with someone other than your spouse is considered sexually immoral by God's standard. And if just the thought of having sex with someone that you're not married to is sin, then obviously actually going through with the idea to any degree is obviously sin as well. Howard Hendricks was uh, my hermeneutics or Bible study methods professor, and he once said something like this. He said, 95% of the will of God is found in the Bible. And once you figure that 95% out, the other 5% comes rather easily. And I'd say that, yeah, 
sometimes that 5% comes pretty easily. But learning that 95% does take some work. It takes some diligent study. And even then, there are times when something that falls within that other 5% can be somewhat difficult to discern from time to time. Questions like, what is the calling that God has on my life? Well, that can be really difficult to answer conclusively, and that can take a considerable amount of time and prayer and study. Now, as we've started the 14th chapter of the letter to the Romans, Paul is aware that there are some areas in the life of a follower of Jesus that aren't necessarily black and white. There's, there's gray area, areas into which personal discernment is, is needed. For the person who understands that God has no tolerance for sin and who very clearly is surrendering their lives to Jesus continually in an effort to live a life that's pleasing to God, Paul knows that people who follow Jesus will occasionally come upon something that is morally neutral and they'll have to make a decision one way or another. And by the way, when I'm talking about something morally neutral, I'm talking about something that is neither uh, neither good nor bad in and of itself. Um, eating fruit from a tree, for example, is morally neutral in and of itself. The issue for Adam and Eve was not so much that they ate the, the fruit from the forbidden tree. No, the real issue was their rebellious disobedience. I mean, God could have given them one of countless morally neutral scenarios to avoid, such as um, putting both feet in a, in a certain stream of water. He could have said, you know, don't put both feet in this stream of water, or uh, don't sleep past 9 a.m., or, you know, something like that. You get the point, hopefully. That's what morally neutral means. And so the discussion of, uh, of chapter 14 here in Romans started with Paul giving an example of not allowing something that's morally neutral to become a stumbling block for anyone. The example that Paul gave was food. That's the issue that he started out with. Some followers of Jesus might feel like they shouldn't eat a certain type of food, whereas other followers of Jesus will believe that God allows them to eat all foods. And the conclusion really is that they're both right, and that one is to one person who has one opinion is to accept the person who has a different opinion. Since the law of Moses has been abolished by Christ, the dietary laws of the Old Testament aren't binding on us, and as we saw in our discussion of verses 1 to 4, all types of food are indeed morally permissible. But just for good measure, maybe, Paul includes a second issue, which is more or less morally neutral. It is morally neutral, an issue on which followers of Jesus have freedom. And so Paul continues writing, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Let's go ahead and stop there. Um, So the issue of which day a person should set aside as a day to observe or or worship the Lord is the second example of personal conviction that Paul gives us. Now, if we were to survey the various opinions that followers of Jesus have on this issue, I think what we'd find is that followers of Jesus generally tend to fall into one of three possible categories. The first category is what I would call strict or Jewish Sabbatarians, maybe traditional Sabbatarians. Uh, This group maintains that the Sabbath has always been the last day of the week, the seventh day of the week, that being Saturday, and that someone who wants to follow Jesus is therefore obligated to continue the tradition of observing the Sabbath by worshiping on Saturday and Saturday only. The Seventh-day Adventists, 
uh, are the most obvious example of this group. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventists believe that worship on any day other than Saturday is unacceptable to God. And in fact, they believe that um, that abandoning the Sabbath being on Saturday or worshiping on any day other than Saturday is the mark of the beast, which is referred to in the book of Revelation. And so thus the necessary implication there is that if a person doesn't worship on Saturday, they're going to hell, since that's the eternal destiny of anyone and everyone who accepts this mark of the beast that's referred to in Revelation. Uh, There are some very obvious problems, huge problems with that interpretation, and it definitely requires that a person jump through some uh, hermeneutical hoops that they've created in their own minds, but which aren't really there. Uh, Nevertheless, those who fit into this first group are our brothers and sisters in Christ, as they do affirm all of the essentials about who Jesus is and what he accomplished on Calvary. So with that much established, the Lord has commanded me and all of us to accept them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. The second category that followers of Jesus will fall into on this issue is what we might refer to as Sunday Sabbatarians. That is, they believe, like the first group, that a follower of Jesus must observe the Sabbath, but they believe that the Sabbath has been moved to Sunday, and that a follower of Jesus must, therefore, set the first day of the week aside, that being Sunday, for the Lord. Uh, One of the arguments that they'll commonly use is that we're supposed to give God the first fruits. And so it only makes sense that we'd give God the first day of the week as a day of worship. And they'll also refer to verses like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes, quote, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you do also. On the first day of every week, let each of you put aside and save, as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come, end quote. And so the, the instruction here seems to be twofold. First of all, Paul is instructing the Corinthian followers of Jesus to meet on the first day of the week, that being Sunday. And secondly, Paul is instructing them to take up a collection of money that they've put aside. Now, we know that the early church began gathering on Sundays because that was the day that the Lord had resurrected from the grave. Uh, In the second century, we know that followers of Jesus were gathering on Sunday, thanks to the writings of Ignatius, among others, and that they were referring to Sunday as the Lord's Day. Well, where did that term come from? It actually comes from Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, where the apostle John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So the tradition that was passed down was that this vision came to John on a Sunday, and since John had referred to it as the Lord's day, the significance is that this represents a change in the day that the Sabbath must be observed. Uh, As with the first group, the the strict or traditional Sabbatarians, uh, I fully accept Sunday Sabbatarians as my brothers and sisters in Christ, being that they affirm the essentials of who Jesus is and what he accomplished on Calvary. Now, the third category might be referred to as non-Sabbatarians. This group of people believes that a person, an individual, is free to observe whichever day they choose, or they can choose all of the days. This category holds that the individual is free to choose which day of the week to worship the Lord, or that they're free to worship every day. So the go-to verse for this group would be the one that we find ourselves in right now, Romans chapter 14, 
verse 5. Uh, and of course, you've probably already guessed by this point that this is the category that I personally would fit into, being that I've already told you that I accept, I fully accept, both strict Sabbatarians and Sunday Sabbatarians as my brothers and sisters in Christ. The justification uh, for this third position is actually found in the verse that follows, however, verse 6, where Paul explains why it's okay for followers of Jesus to have different opinions on morally neutral, non-essential issues. And so he writes, He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So the point there is that they both have something in common. They're both giving thanks to God, right? Well, given that we're not under the law, we're free to worship God in the way that our conscience leads us. No matter which of the three categories a person falls into, the day that they set aside for the Lord is really ultimately between them and the Lord. It's not between us and them. None of us should be observing any day for God simply because another person tells us that that's the day we absolutely have to. No, it's between one person and God alone. The fact is that the fourth commandment from the law of Moses is the only one of the Ten Commandments which isn't repeated in the New Testament. There's no repetition uh, in the New Testament of the command to observe the Sabbath. Every one of the other nine is repeated, but the command to observe the Sabbath isn't. In fact, if we think about it, the command to observe the Sabbath is very distinct from the other nine commands, as none of the other nine commands have anything to do whatsoever with whether or not a person is fully convinced in their own mind. The first three commands pertain to how, and not when, they pertain to how a person is to love God. The final six pertain to issues of morality between people. To see how different uh, the command to observe the Sabbath is, try plugging another one of the, uh, you know, the, the, the final six commands, for example, the, the command not to murder, into verse 5 here in Romans 14, and you'll see what I mean. For example, it would then say, one person esteems abstaining from murdering some people as better than abstaining from murdering other people. Another man esteems abstaining from murdering anyone the same. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? And it's certainly contrary to the black and white explicit teachings of Jesus, not only to love our enemies, but what about the fact that Jesus taught that it was a sin to even be angry enough to curse our brother, and that doing so is the moral equivalent to murder in God's eyes? Or let's try another one, the commandment not to commit adultery. If we were to plug that here into verse 5, it would say, one man esteems one woman as better than another, while another man esteems all women the same. Let everyone be convinced in his own mind. And again, we would see that that would just be complete nonsense. Now, before anyone takes what I'm saying the wrong way, let me clarify and say that I'm not saying that each person is free to do anything and everything that their conscience allows. No, the heart is deceptive. Uh, the conscience can be seared. No, some things, most things in fact, are absolutely and unequivocally either morally permissible or morally impermissible. Behaving in any way which is contrary to the nature of God is inherently off-limits, for example. But Paul makes it clear that for morally neutral decisions, for morally neutral issues, there's one thing that makes the individual's choice or opinion acceptable. 
doing it for the sake of pleasing the Lord and doing it with a heart that's full of gratefulness to the Lord. We have to remember that prior to trusting in Jesus for our salvation and prior to thereby becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus, we were like that ugly, messy, dirty lump of coal. We're all, however, being gradually transformed into the image of Christ. Each one of us entered this new life in Jesus as people who had previously lived by and for the pleasure of our own flesh. Sin had ownership of us, as we saw back in chapter 5 of Romans, and it trained us to obey our lusts, our wants, our desires, and our opinions. Through Jesus, we've been declared free from the chains of sin and are now owned by Jesus who paid for us with his own blood that was shed on the cross for us. In the Old Testament, God gave very, very specific laws and lots of them to govern the conduct of his people. But we're not under those laws now that we're in Christ. We're freed from them. The Mosaic law was given to show us how unrighteous each one of us really is because nobody is able to uphold all of the laws of the Old Testament. But perhaps equally important is the fact that in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit to lead them in their daily lives and to convict each person individually in regards to morally neutral issues. That's something that we have now as we're in the age of grace. Friends, I can't even tell you how much I personally despise any type of legalism. I hate it. I hate legalism because legalism is really just one person forcing their personal individual convictions on other people, conforming others to their own image rather than the image of Jesus. I despise legalism because it unnecessarily puts stumbling blocks between individuals and Jesus, and it causes people to rely more on what other people say and less on what the Holy Spirit leads and convicts an individual to do. Legalism is a system of being driven by guilt rather than being driven by grace. However, let me say this much. As much as I hate legalism and anything else which draws a person's attention away from God's amazing and glorious grace, I do love the legalist. Not because of what they do, but because God has given me the same title that he's given them, child of God. I know, I know that without God's grace, I could, and I probably would, be just as divisive as any legalist. I know and I confess that as a younger and as a much weaker follower of Jesus, I used to look down on anyone who disagreed with me on a lot of issues that really just boiled down to unimportant, non-essential opinions and issues. But Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6 tells us that God scourges every son he receives. In other words, he disciplines those who put their trust in Jesus. And let me just tell you, friends, that I've had a couple trips, a lot of trips, actually, out behind the divine woodshed. God has broken my heart with conviction on those issues over the past five years. You see, here's here's what it all boils down to. The life that's driven by God's grace begins with loving and accepting other followers of Jesus who might not agree with me on a lot of things. In fact, they might not agree with me about most things, you know, other than the fact that we're both saved by grace through faith in the second person of the Trinity who was resurrected three days after dying for our sins. And I've learned to be okay with that because if God can accept me, and he has, as dirty as I was, 
and would still be if it wasn't for his grace, if he can do that, if he can accept me, then surely I can accept my brother or sister in Christ, even when we have different opinions on things, including which day we set aside for the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you have not only made us one with yourself, but that you have commanded us to be one with each other. You've commanded us to love each other and to accept each other. And God, I just want to confess once again to you that I have not always done that perfectly. In fact, sometimes I haven't done that well at all, God. And I I thank you that you have turned my heart away from that, that you have taught me individually uh, to focus on the things that really matter, to focus on things that will bring people into your kingdom and that will demonstrate to my brothers and sisters in Christ the fact that I love them because you love them. God, I thank you that you saved each one of us as dirty as we were, as filthy as we were. You took us in, you cleaned us off, and you're taking us all through this process of conforming us to the image of your Son. God, we pray that every day that you will transform our lives toward Christ-likeness for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. When we see you When we see you When we see you When we see you Beautiful, you're beautiful Your love is sweet and beautiful I will stay here waiting for beautiful Beautiful, you're beautiful Your love is wild and bountiful Yes, all I need is more of my beautiful Jesus, love, set worshippers You want love, set worshippers So alive Desperate at your feet Jesus, we love Set worshippers We are love Set worshippers And our hearts Desire will be complete